This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. A conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Welcome to our podcast here, Hurt with Fetters. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host, and I'm sitting here today with Jason Karch, the author of Hurt with Fetters, a examination of the criminal justice system in relation to a reflection of, from a theological perspective, how we come to the issue of criminal justice, how we promote justice, how we I was going to use the word execute justice, but I don't want to use that word here in the United States from a Christian perspective. Uh, so, Jason, welcome today. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Pastor. Today we're going to we're going to discuss the deep subject of ontology. In chapter three of uh, your book, you have entitled it "A Reflection of Being." And uh, so, Jason, would you first begin just by talking about what exactly is, just for our listeners, what is ontology? What does that mean? And what is the significance for our discussion here or in relation to how we think about criminal justice system? Well, when it comes to, to this chapter, the majority of the book had been sketched out when I began to think about the necessity of including a chapter on ontology. I began to see how this plays a pivotal role in how we understand the subsequent reflections that unfold in the book when it comes to the reflection on image in particular, how I understand the image of God in man, how I understand the nature of law, how I understand the nature of love. These things, I begin to look at how ontology plays a definitive role in that understanding. So I had to dial back and include this chapter because when you think about ontology, ontology, simply put, is just the study of being. And when you look at the history of Western philosophy, uh, philosophers will argue what is the priority in terms of metaphysics? Is it epistemology? Is it how we know what we know? Or is it ontology? Is it a, a grounding in the nature of being? And so for our purposes here, we want to look at a couple of ways in which being has been understood throughout Western history. And the two distinctives that unfold in the way that being is understood is in terms of quality or substance or relation. So when it comes to ontology, do we understand ontology in terms of quality or substance or relation? And okay. so that's how the, the chapter kind of unfolds. Okay, so, so let's just unpack that just a little bit. So do I understand ontology or being, my being, in terms of quality, substance? Basically... Am I good, bad? Well, quality and substance are related, if you will. We are qualitatively good or bad. If our understanding of ontology works itself out in terms of quality or substance, we are qualitatively good or bad. That's how we're viewed. Or substantively, we're good or bad. And when we view our being qualitatively or substantively like that, then there's nothing I can do about my goodness or badness. It's a quality that's rooted or grounded in my being. Or substantively, if I'm good or bad, there's nothing I can do about that. Substantively, this is how I am comprised in my being. 
So is this the way people look at other people? So do we make judgments? Or are you saying that, that we make judgments based upon goodness or badness? Maybe I look at you and I say, you're a good person. I look at someone else and say, they're bad. Maybe is that, is that the way that works? Yes, I think when you have a prior understanding, whether it's an implicit or an explicit understanding of ontology in terms of quality or substance, if you have a prior understanding of ontology that works itself out in those categories, then naturally we see each other in these ways. I think it was Harold Kushner years ago that wrote the book, Why Do Bad sure. Things Happen to Good People? Because people by and large see themselves as good. Well, that stems from a understanding of ontology that comes from quality or substance. You know, these categories that shape our understanding of who we are. And that's really what I want to challenge in the chapter is this understanding of quality or substance in terms of ontology lends itself to how the current narrative of criminal justice unfolds so that people are automatically characterized or categorized as good people or bad people. Okay. And so how does that, how does that unfold? How does that work out? If you commit a crime, you're a bad person. You don't commit a crime, you're a good person, basically. Is that the way that works? Well, if you think about how we talked about this in the past, how in the current narrative of criminal justice, you have the people who make policies, they police crime, they prosecute crime, they punish crime. Well, these are the good people. And subsequently, there's good people in society that are given the responsibility to punish the bad people, the malefactors, the people who commit crime, and they have to be dealt with in terms of their badness in contrast to the goodness of the people who are dealing with the bad people. And I think if we restructure our understanding of ontology or our understanding of being, it challenges that narrative at its root. Okay, so the other side or the other... A way of approaching the essence of our being rather than qualitative or substantive is relational. So talk about what that means. What does it mean to understand who I am or who you are based upon relationship? I really unpack that in how I understand the image of God in man, but I think it goes back to the nature of God himself. Because if God possesses a particular nature, if he exists in a certain way, then all of creation will reflect his nature. So for the Christian, we understand God's nature as triune. God exists as one being in three persons, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in his triune nature, there is an eternal relation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that has existed from all eternity, in the nature of God itself. So, all of creation should reflect the nature of God. So, all of creation, to some degree, in its very existence, is relational, as it reflects the being of God. So, as people, by virtue of being created how we are, we are relational. We relate, first and foremost, to God, and then to one another. So, I think all of creation reflects that relationship, and if we have a proper understanding of ontology then we're understanding it in terms of relation. Okay, so how does that impact the execution or the uh, administration of justice or these issues that we deal with in the criminal justice system? Well, you think about how 
the current narrative of criminal justice is understood in terms of making a distinction, a qualitative or substantive distinction between good people and bad people again. If that is a reality, if the reality is that there are good people in the world ontologically and bad people in the world ontologically, there's nothing that can be done about that. This is reality. This is the world that we live in. You have good people and you have bad people. It is what it is. and We have to figure out a way to deal with it. Well, naturally, some people are going to have a leg up on determining who actually is the good people and who are the bad people. For instance, you take prior to World War II in Germany, you have the emergence of a governing system that would characterize a certain race of people as good and another race of people as bad. Well, of course, the people that construe themselves as good are the ones that have the power to execute this distinction. And we see how that works out in the Holocaust. And so anytime we understand ontology in terms of quality and substance, where we can separate the natural relation we share between one another, it works itself out in terms of abuses. So somebody sees themselves as good and the good people see other people as bad and whoever has the power to administer their goodness over and against the badness of the bad people, it works itself out in terms of abuses. And so when you look at the current narrative of criminal justice, you see some of those abuses naturally emerge from how that is understood. So the abuses come in how criminal justice is administered in the prison system, I suppose. Would that also go back to the courtroom? Is it just Does it just play out itself in the prison system? Because I can see, so it, certainly in the prison system, you have offenders or you have inmates and you have guards and those type of things. And, and you can see that distinction being made. We're the good people, you're the bad people. But are you suggesting that, that this is systemic, that this is part of the entire culture or system that comes about? to administer the entire criminal justice system? Well, yeah, I make the point in the book that the narrative, the current narrative of criminal justice is legitimized and sustained by its ability to effectively and efficiently identify, stigmatize, capture, and confine the bad people, the criminal, and the way in which people who are in power who are able to create the laws, the policies to prosecute crime, police crime. They're able to, I think, sell this narrative to the public through the effectiveness of how they do these things. So, but just in a practical sense, does it come across as if you do the crime, you must do the time or whatever is happening to those people in the prison, they deserve it because they're bad people or because they're criminals. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned before that I've driven past, you know, this particular prison. Maybe a whole lot of people drive past prisons and they think, okay, whatever is going on inside there, maybe I don't have a clue of what's going on inside there. But whatever is happening, those people, those the offenders, the inmates, they're getting what they deserve because they did the crime or they've done something and therefore they are basically bad people, right? Well, I think that's the tail end of it. When you see somebody already sentenced to prison, that comes on the tail end of the narrative, but it begins way before that. You, know, you and I talked about 
just kind of bouncing some of these ideas back and forth about, you know, the 1990s, one, you know, very popular television show was America's Most Wanted, where the guy that leads the show, you know, he uses all these hotlines so that people can call in and he'll put somebody who is accused of a crime, 90% of the time is somebody that is accused of a crime, which in our system is supposed to be, you are innocent until proven guilty, but they're seeking to apprehend this person that is accused of a crime. They need information that leads to the capture of this person. Well, John Walsh, of course, he sensationalizes all of this. Tonight, we need America's help to get this monster or this animal or this beast off of the street. Well, what does that do to people's minds? Now we're not dealing with a person that we, by virtue of who we are in our being, that we naturally relate to from a human qua human relation. Nah, we're dealing with something altogether different. An animal or a monster. An animal or a monster. And I have a footnote, a following chapter from Texas Representative Joe Moody, who before becoming a representative in the Texas government, he was a, a criminal prosecutor. And he talks about how being in school, learning to be a prosecutor, he said, I remember the philosophy they taught you when you're a young prosecutor. When you're arguing to the jury, you're supposed to make sure you create some distance between the jury and the defendant. You don't want the jury to see themselves in that seat because it makes it easier for them to convict and punish if they see the person as other. This is taught behavior for prosecutors. Well, where does that come from? You do not want a jury to be able to identify with the defendant as a human being. You have to create an ontological distance between yourself and that person so that you're in a better position to execute whatever necessary punishments somebody sees fit. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that there is a danger that works itself out from an understanding of who we are in our being from ontology that is either qualitative or substantive that lends itself to these subsequent abuses we see in the current narrative of criminal justice that run contrary to how we should understand ourselves as Christians. So if we change our ontology, if, if we were able to, and or everyone involved in the execution or the, the administration of this criminal justice system, if they were to adopt a relational ontology or an understanding that everyone we relate on a just a basic level as human beings with everyone how would that change what we currently see in the criminal justice system all right well again take a step back and think about who god is in his being we understand god in his being as relation given the the eternal nature of the relation of the father the son and the holy spirit in the being of god so when we make propositional claims from that basic understanding of God, when we say God is holy or God is good or God is just, these propositions become relational in and of themselves. So just take the last one, for instance. Take justice. God is just. God is just. Conceptually, the way we understand justice if it, if it stems from the being of God, it has to, in and of itself, be relational. So when we think about the narrative of criminal justice or how justice is upheld, administered in the world that we live in, how we administer justice between one another, if this is in itself a relational term, then it affects everything and how this unfolds, if our understanding of justice is based on this type of ontology, well, give this me understanding. Some, well, give me some examples. I mean, so what exactly 
might change. But justice is conceptually reliant upon God's existence. To say God is just is to say something about justice, to say that, that justice has to go back to the way we understand or we think about God, or that justice flows from his being. And he is relational, so so we are relational, okay? But but take a step back from, from justice to the commission of, of a crime. So, for example, if I rob from you or if I murder you or if I do something to you, if I commit a crime against you, I'm violating that relational connection, right, I, I guess? Absolutely. Uh, and so if we administer justice, then does that not also have to as a necessity violate that that relational i mean i'm thinking if you lock somebody up in jail or in prison for example you're separating them from other people right which is a relational has a relational aspect i guess and of course we're going to we deal with justice in its own chapter but to set the stage for that yes i think our concepts of goodness or or justice they're fused into a prior relation that stems from how we understand the relational nature of God. So if somebody commits a crime, obviously there is a violation of the relation we share or a rupture in the relation that we share that needs to be dealt with. Because if we understand justice relationally, we're understanding it in terms of equity, the same way Aristotle would understand justice. But Aristotle's understanding of justice in terms of equity flows out of a prior understanding of ontology in terms of quality or substance. Because for Aristotle, you have an equity that, that exists between free Greek males. But if you take a free Greek male and a Greek female, there is no equity there because there is a qualitative or substantive difference that offsets the free Greek male and the Greek female where they don't share a basic relational equity. The same way with a free Greek male and somebody else, certainly a free Greek male and slaves don't share equity. So if we understand justice in terms of equity, a true equity exists between uh, those who share a prior relation in their nature. And so if you take somebody who commits a crime, then that relationship is ruptured. And justice needs to seek how to restore that equity, not offset it all the more. Okay, so currently now what is taking place is the administration of justice actually exacerbates the inequity. And basically, there's nothing that's taking place to try to restore that equity. We're, we're coming to issues of, of what is the outcome of justice. But before we get there, I want to ask this question. Does this relate in a cultural sense, to, to what's happening, you know, racially. So today, there's a big debate in our country on how uh, justice is administered along racial lines. So if you are white, you're treated one way, perhaps, by the criminal justice system at its essence. And if you're a person of color, typically you're treated in, in a different way, or the thought is you're treated differently. Is, is that what we're talking about here? Well, I think that is a reality. I think that it was more pronounced in the past than it is today because even though it's a reality, I think the mask is somewhat being peeled back from that to expose 
that it is not primarily a racial thing, although it has worked itself out, just at a basic glance, it's worked itself out like that. But I think the mask is being pulled back to reveal that it's really a an economic thing, a class thing, because there is no equity that exists between rich people and poor people. And so having spent a quarter of a century in prison, just by experience, you don't see wealthy people incarcerated. And you think about on the heels of the civil rights movement once Dr. King had accomplished some of the objectives he wanted to accomplish in civil rights, he made the announcement that he wanted to now begin to attack the larger issue of poverty. And Lyndon Baines Johnson told him, do not do that. The world is not ready for that. But he proceeded anyway and just, you know, not even a month after he made that announcement, I think, he was assassinated. So are you saying that people are more willing to to look at different races on an equitable basis than they are to look at a different economic, I mean. Yes, but I think it even goes back a step further when you talk about justice in terms of equity. Again, you have this qualitative or substantive distinction between the good people. So people in a jury, a prosecutor, a judge, naturally sees themselves as the good people with the responsibility to punish the bad people. But it raises the question of representation then in the criminal justice system, which would be an economic thing. So if you're wealthy or you have means, you can afford a good lawyer who can give you a good representation. If you don't, then maybe you're going to get a public defender or maybe um, someone else who can't give you proper representation. Is that basic to this issue? Well, I think it certainly plays a role. But even before that, even if you do have, let's say, you're a wealthy person, you're able to hire very powerful, influential attorneys with a, a great legal team, with investigators who are able to do the legwork to generate evidence, to mitigate against the evidence that the prosecutor may or may not present. So so a person who does not have means or is not able to, to hire that type of legal team, maybe has a public defender, and, and I would suppose that, that by and large, Majority of public defenders are eager to do a good job. They want to do a good job. They care about justice and issues of justice, but they may not have the ability or the means to provide an adequate defense. And so a person with lesser means is going to more likely end up going to prison than someone who has means and can hire the team that is able to provide a more vigorous defense, I suppose. Yes, and one of the examples I use later on in the book is of Ethan Couch, where he crashes and kills, I think, four people while under the influence, no driver's license, no insurance, crashes and kills four people. Now, I've met people serving 50 years sentences for a DWI where there was no crash, no anything involved like that. Well, this guy, he has a very high-powered defense team who makes the so argument. He comes from a family that uh, has means. Oh, very, very wealthy family. And his defense team makes the argument that he's suffering from affluenza. So because of his affluence, because of his wealth, he doesn't have the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. His affluence puts him in a position, like Nietzsche would say, that transcends cultural structures of good and evil. And they won based on this defense. He was acquitted. Well, no, he wasn't acquitted, but he wasn't sentenced to prison. Oh, okay. Because his affluenza... This, was his this, excuse. 
was his excuse that mitigated against the death yeah. of four people. So four people were died as a result of my action, but I'm not responsible because I grew up basically with a silver spoon in my mouth. I've had all of this, had everything given to me, and I can't determine what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, so you have a jury that is now thrust into this existential crisis of now they're in a position as the good people to try to figure out how they deal with one of their own. He is, is so good, he don't even know how to understand his goodness and, and badness. And I, I know I say that somewhat facetiously, but that is a demonstration of how this distinction in our ontological understanding of how criminal justice works itself out plays a very real role here. And for somebody looking from the outside that is somewhat thinking about this stuff, it becomes almost ridiculous. But it shows that this is a reality and how this works itself out. And if we cannot come to a place to where we understand the nature of our being as being relational, then we can never understand justice as relation. But for the Christian, because of our understanding of who God is, in his being as relation, we have to think about these things in these terms. Okay, so one final question. If we did begin to think of these things in these terms, if our understanding of the execution or the administration of justice was relational rather than qualitative or substantive, and, and I asked this question before, but, but I, want to, I want to ask it in this way. I, my question was how will that ultimately play out? And I want you to talk for just a minute about, about the goal of criminal justice. We're going to come to this later in the book, but how will changing our way of thinking, our ontological understanding of basic humanity, how would that change the outcome of what we're seeking to accomplish in the administration of justice in our country? Well, think about it like this first. If justice is understood in terms of equity and it plays itself out ontologically in terms of quality or substance that lends itself to these abuses that we've talked about a little bit right here. If that is what it is, then in the prosecution of crime, there is no equity between the good people and the bad people. So there's nothing to be restored. All we have is the administration of raw retribution. But if we see the goal of criminal justice as the restoration of this fundamental equity we share from the relation we share as human beings, then necessarily the prosecution and the punishment of crime will seek the restoration of that equity and will provide a means by which people can be restored to society where they have an opportunity for redemption. You know, just in the arts, people love a good redemption story. So there's something built into us inherently that craves for redemption when we've messed up. We want to be redeemed. We want to be restored back to a right relation with one another, with society, but, but foremost with God, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. So I think the the end of this, the way it would work itself out, is in terms of people having an opportunity to be restored back to society in a very real way so that they can be redeemed. All right. So if we were able to change our ontology, and certainly from a Christian perspective or from believers, uh, we can do that from a, from a cultural uh, 
a secular cultural standpoint, we're talking about a big major shift in understanding of who we are. But if that were to take place, then justice would look more redemptive and restorative than just punitive or the punishment of crime as we as we see it today. Jason, thank you for for your insight. Thank you for this opportunity to discuss these very important issues. And we look forward to uh, to next time as we reflect on the image that human beings possess. Thank you for joining us today, and God bless you. Hopefully this has been encouraging, while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new and more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Feathers, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.